Good morning. How is everybody? Good. Are you enjoying the warmer weather? Okay, good. I don't want to hear complaints about it. Uh, it's funny. I've noticed that when it gets hot like this, uh, people have a tendency to be like, oh, I'm roasting. And I'm like, come on. It's awesome. Like, let's, uh, let's enjoy it. <laughs> Uh, just out of interest, I was messaging our Kintour home group WhatsApp uh, thread this morning, and uh, out of interest, I looked up the temperature right now, because I was encouraging people to enjoy the day, and I looked up the temperature at that time in Austin, Texas, where we previously lived, and it was, uh, it's three, it was 3 a.m. in the morning, and it was 26 degrees uh, still, so it's just, it's all a matter of perspective, right? Um, well, I hope that you're uh, ready to open your hearts and God's Word together. Emma, thank you on a great kid's spot. I don't know how you feel about watching yourself. I know that's always a little bit awkward, but you did a great job um, really setting us up well for this conversation about the fact that God is just. And so I'm just going to, I know it's, we've prayed several times in our service already, but I'm going to pray just one more time, just really asking God to, to still my heart and to lead us together through this time. So I just invite you to bow your head and to, and to pause one more time with me. God, we thank you for today. We thank you that even the weather outside today is a reminder that you are gracious towards us beyond what we deserve. And as we come to look at what can be quite a serious topic, the fact that you are a just God, I pray that you would help us to be honest with you, to be honest with ourselves, and to really walk away with a sense of awe at the grace that you offer us. I pray that this time together, reflecting on your word, would actually produce in us worship. So we invite you to work. We continue to invite you. We've already invited you, but we continue to invite you to work here amongst us, please. Thank you. Amen. There is a part of perhaps every person that I believe celebrates justice. And what I mean by that is that we want justice to happen. And when justice does happen, we rejoice. Storytellers and now, in fact, movie makers have known this fact for a long time and they've kind of capitalized on that. Think about most stories you know. There's some sort of injustice and then when it resolves, we're all like, yes, that's what we wanted to happen. I mean, if you want to talk about an older story, think about the story of Cinderella with me. Cinderella is this person who has all these horrible things happen to her, these injustices at the hands of her stepmother and stepsisters. And when finally the story resolves and, and justice is served, the sisters get what they deserve, the stepmother does, we rejoice. We're like, yes, something resolves in our hearts. What if I were to tell you that the reason we celebrate justice like that is because God designed us that way? Your deep desire for justice was actually, in fact, put there with great intent and care by God. This is one of the attributes of God. When we talk about the fact that God is just, He is a God of justice, this is one of the attributes that we actually hold in common with God. So we can say that God is just, 
And when we seek justice as well, what we are doing is we're actually proving what the Bible tells us, that we were made in the image of God. We're reflecting God in a way. Now, before we get too carried away with that particular thought of thinking, wow, you know, I'm made in the image of God. God is just and I am too. It's worth pointing out that God is perfectly just and we are not. To kind of highlight that, I'm going to ask you to go to Romans chapter 2, which Emma read for us earlier. Romans chapter 2. In fact, we're going to be parked here for a lot of our time today, so feel free to just kind of leave that open as we go through our time together. Romans 2 and verse 1 is where we're going to start. There's many scriptures we could look at when we're talking about the justice of God, but this is where we're going to spend the majority of our time. It says this in verse 1, therefore, by the way, when it's saying therefore, the background to this, if you were to flip back to the previous chapter, what you'd see is it's talking about unrighteousness, injustice, sin, corruption in the world. So that's the, the basis of what we're coming out of. It's talking about all the brokenness of the world. And it says, therefore, verse 1, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another... You condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. What this verse is telling us is that you have, a, you have a sense of right and wrong. You look at others and you judge them. You're like, that's right, that's wrong. We judge all the time. But part of the problem is that our sense of right and wrong is corrupted. Hypocritically, the injustice, injustices that we point out in others, we can actually look down and easily find ourselves doing. Our sense of justice has become polluted by pride, by selfishness, and I mean, if we want to call it what it is, by sin. Thankfully, God's justice is perfect, like I already mentioned. And so that's what we're going to examine today. What do we mean by that when we say that God's justice is perfect? And so to do this, as we look at this topic, I'm going to look at three main words. And I invite you to kind of remember these in the back of your mind. It'll help you kind of track where we're going. The first word is justice. The second word is wrath. And by the way, there are two ways of saying that word. Some people say wrath. Some people say wrath. I'm going to stick with wrath, okay? So wrath. And then the third word is love. Justice, wrath, love. What is justice? That word just is one that we can use in a whole bunch of ways, as Emma very well highlighted. You know, I could say, well, I just really want to eat pizza, or I just wish that you would listen to me. When we use the word in that way, that's not at all what we're talking about here. So what are we talking about? If we were to look up a dictionary and say, what is justice? What I found in the dictionaries is that that secular, as in just the, the worldly definition of justice, actually isn't that great. But basically what it would tell you is something along this lines, the line of this. Uh, fairness in the way that people are treated and dealt with. So as I looked up these definitions, I was like, okay, let's, let's look into something maybe that has more of a God-oriented sense to that definition. And so if you were to open up a theological textbook, like one of the ones that Wayne Grudem has written, what he does is actually points out something very interesting and something that we need to be aware of as people who want to look at the Bible and study what it means. And so I'm just going to read for you an excerpt of his section where he talks about justice. He says this, in English, as in the English language, 
The terms righteousness and justice are different words. And you're all saying, okay, yeah, I know that. But listen to this. But in both the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament, there is only one word group behind these two English terms. So this is important for us to know. Righteousness and justice, these terms are one and the same. And so he goes then on to define this term, righteousness and justice. What does that mean? He says it means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard on what is right. As in God is fair, he's right in all that he does, but he also is the measure of what is right. Now, this isn't some just random definition that he's kind of pulled out of the air. It's something that he's come to write in reflecting on God's word and what God's word tells us about his sense of justice. And you can actually see this coming out in the very next verse in Romans chapter 2. So turn back there with me if you'd like to. Romans 2 verse 2, what does that say? It says this, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Now, such things, it's talking about, again, the brokenness, the sin, the corruption in the world. But what I really want you to focus in on is that, that phrase that says that it rightly falls. The judgment of God rightly falls. What this means is that God is just, God is fair, and gives everyone exactly what they deserve. We've been talking about the fact that God is everywhere, that he is all-powerful, he's all-present. And that means that he sees everything, he knows everything. And what we're adding to that thought today is that he also judges rightly. He witnesses all things, but he also executes justice because he is a just God. Now, it would be fair if some of you wanted us to take a pause at this moment and say, hey, hey, wait a second, I'm feeling a little bit of a disconnect here. Because what can happen is this truth can sometimes feel like it does not line up with our day-in, day-out reality. And that's because all around us, we witness injustices in the world. I mean, right now, if I, if I called on any of you, I'm sure you could list out things that you see in the world that are not right and we ask ourselves, okay, if God is just, why would he allow injustice to continue? Some of you may picture in your minds an image from a news story where you've seen some child starving to death on the edge of a village somewhere. Others of you may think of a story where someone was taken, abducted from their safe environment, their home. Others of you may think to a corrupt politician getting another payoff. These are all just examples of injustices in the world. And so we feel this tension. We're like, okay, God, you're telling us you're just, and yet the world is full of injustice. And we're not the first ones to feel this tension. In fact, if you go back into the Old Testament, thousands of years before we were living, people were wrestling with this. In fact, there's a man named Jeremiah who was a prophet, a spokesman for God in the Old Testament. And he was wrestling with this. He loved God, but he saw this, this disconnect. He felt this tension. If we were to flip over to Jeremiah 12, which I'm not going to do, I'll just read it for you. But Jeremiah 12 in verse 1, listen to what Jeremiah says. He says, righteous are you, God, as in God, I know you're just. But then he goes on and says, when I complain to you, yet 
I would plead my case before you. He's saying, God, I know you're just, but hear me out. And then he goes on and says this, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? We hear this line of thinking coming out in in Psalm 73. That's another passage I could take you to. Or over in Job 21, verse 7 through 9. It's interesting. I'll read that one for you. It says this, Why do the wicked live? This is Job speaking. Reach old age and grow mighty in power. Their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear and no rod of God is upon them. Now you hear that and you're like, yeah, that's a fair complaint. But if you know the story of Job, you know how close to home that question is. Because you know that Job has just recently lost all his possessions and he was a wealthy man. He's also just lost his health. He's sitting there with sores covering his body. But I think worse than any of that, he's just lost 10 kids all in a day, taken from him. If anyone had a valid reason to question God on justice or on injustice, it was Job. We ask questions like Job, like Jeremiah, forgetting a couple of important things. And both of these things that I'm going to mention have to do with a word, and that word is perspective. Firstly, our perspective is warped when it comes to time. We live our short lives seeing the wrongs that are going on around us not made right, and we forget the fact that God is eternal, that He's not constrained by time. His justice may feel slow to us, but in His perfect timing, justice will be served. He's promised that. 2 Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So what happens is a person who does not know God, they look at injustice and they feel frustrated, they feel frantic, they feel helpless because they don't have this perspective that God will ultimately make all things right. On the other side, a person who trusts God, sees injustice, and hopefully, yes, works against those injustices, but they can also trust and rest that God, rest knowing that God will bring about justice. And this is why God encourages us who trust in Him to rest in Him in this fact. If you look at Romans 12, verse 19, it says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So our perspective is warped when it comes to time. But secondly, our perspective is also distorted when it comes to ourselves. We find it easy to see evil and injustice in others, and yet incredibly difficult to discern and see it in ourselves. If any of you have children, you may know what I'm talking about here. Our kids seem to point this out to us because if you have kids, you'll know that one of them will come to you and say, hey, he's doing this or she's doing that to me. And you want to turn around and say, wait wait a second, just a few minutes ago, you were doing that to them. I saw that. Our children are just revealing to us 
the problem that we face, and that is that often the things we point out in others, as we've already mentioned, we too do ourselves. If you go back to Romans chapter 2, in verse 3, it, talks, it goes on to talk about this further. It says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things as in evil, injustice, etc., and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape from the judgment of God? What I'm trying to bring home to us here is this truth, and that is that we are all guilty and deserving of God's just judgment. You have thought things. You have spoken things, and you have acted in ways that are not right according to God's standard. And I don't just say you. When I say that, I'm saying that to myself. You and I. If we would actually just look forward a chapter in the Bible, you'll find a very famous verse in Romans 3.23. And what it says is this, For all, not some, not most, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We don't measure up to God's standard. And the truth is, even a righteous person like Job or, or somebody who's really lived an incredible life like Mother Teresa, we have all fallen short. And so when we say, hey, God, what about the wicked? We too are wicked. The truth is, the wicked is us. We are all worthy of God's judgment. So as people deserving this judgment, God's just judgment, what should you and I expect when it comes to judgment? Well, Romans 2 tells us that as well. If you go on to verse 5, it says this, but because of your hard and impenitent that means an unrepenting heart. You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God's just judgment results in wrath. That's our second word I asked you to remember. Now, many of us struggle with this word because we have, in fact, a wrong picture of it. We think of human wrath. And so what we picture in our mind is God turning into some sort of rage monster where he'll like pick up a piece of furniture and throw it across the room because he didn't get what he wanted. That's not at all biblical. That's not the picture that we should see here. God's wrath, hear this, is an appropriate and perfect response to the corruption, sin, and injustice that has distorted his otherwise perfect creation. If we were to go back to Wayne Grudem's Bible doctrine textbook, he would tell us that God's wrath means that he intensely hates sin. There's a very short and simple definition. Think with me for a moment about what God would be like if he didn't hate sin. Grudem actually talks about this in his book. And what he says is that basically that would mean that he either enjoyed sin or he was indifferent to sin. That it didn't bother him. He, wasn't, he was accepting of it. In either case, God would immediately be unworthy of our worship. It is good that God hates sin. God hates our sin. Hear this, because he loves us. And this brings up a really important thought. Uh, a few months ago, I heard 
Matt Chandler, he's a pastor from Texas, talk about the wrath of God. But he said this, and I thought it was so helpful. He said, do not tease out the wrath of God away from the love of God. You will cost yourself worship. You will cost yourself awe and joy and delight. Maybe it would help for us to put some of these thoughts into an illustration. Imagine with me that somebody broke into your home and hurt one of your children or hurt your spouse. If you were not upset or angry about that, the rest of us would actually question whether you loved that family member. This conversation about wrath is not an easy one. But the truth is, God is just. He does repay. And that's because He loves. He loves us. Let there be no doubt that there is payment coming for every wrong. If you go on to verse 6 of Romans 2, it says this, He will render, as in give fully, To each one according to his works. This actually reminds me of the scripture we had read earlier from Revelation 20, where it described the final judgment of God, where every single person will give an account. They stand before God and give an account for how they live. If we were to read verse 12 of Revelation 20, it says this I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Every person will be called to account for every action in their life. And we should all find that concerning. Because as we've already said, we've all fallen short. The only hope that we have, and it's a very good hope, is the hope that is found in Jesus. Rather than us receiving the just punishment that we deserve... Jesus took that punishment upon himself. Romans chapter 6 puts it like this in another very simple but memorable verse. It says, for the wages is in the payment, the end result of sin is what? Death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is good news. Very good news. One of my heroes of the faith, a guy named J.I. Packer, puts it like this. I love this sentence. He says, By his sacrificial death for our sins, Christ pacified the wrath of God. What he's saying there is that God, Jesus absorbed the punishment, the wrath that we deserved. And instead of us receiving that punishment, no, we get the perfection of Jesus instead. So we stand before the throne of God spotless. Not because of our own goodness, but because of Christ's. What an incredible act of love. It's incomparable. You see, we cannot talk about the justice of God, the wrath of God, without also talking about the great love of God. Jesus said these words, and they seem so appropriate here. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. These weren't just words that Jesus spoke. These were the actions 
that he took. Jesus has laid down his life for us so that we don't have to experience the justice, the wrath that we deserve. So what does this reflection on justice, on wrath, on love leave us today? I don't know where your heart is in this moment, but I want to offer up three thoughts on reflection. One is a question, a second is a resource, and the third is a command. The question really revolves, revolves around this great act of grace. And it's a question that I believe all of us need to consider. I'm not making any assumptions on who's in the room here today. I want to ask this question. Is your name written in the book of life? There is only one way to have your name written in that book. And it's through Jesus. All of us can come to him. Any of us can come to him today. And so if you haven't done that, there's an offer to say, okay, don't think any further on this. Come to Jesus, accept his grace, even today. The resource is one that helps us with the pain of injustice. Some of you know all too well what injustice feels like, what it feels like to experience a wrong against you. And I'm going to assume in a room like this that some of you have felt that. If that is you, I, I want to ask you, have you considered the fact that Jesus knows how you feel? And I'm not just saying that because he's all-knowing, which he is. I'm saying that because he has experienced injustice. Think about the cross and the lead up to the cross. He was beaten. He was arrested, beaten, whipped, and hung on a Roman instrument of torture to die. And what for? He was wrongfully accused. I mean, ultimately, if you want to boil it down, he was hung there for love. I mean, what greater injustice has there been in the history of the world? This wasn't just a man wrongfully accused and executed. No, this was the creator of the world coming to love and lead his creation, and yet they killed him. And so if any of you are struggling with injustice, with feeling the weight of wrongs done against you, today come to Jesus and find a resource for comfort because he understands exactly how that feels. And he offers you hope in the midst of injustice. He will right those wrongs, but he also understands. The command is what we are called to when we receive the gift of God's grace. If God has graciously absorbed the wrath and judgment that we deserve, how should we now live? It would actually be unreasonable for us to not ask that question, to just be like, oh, thanks for that grace. That's nice. And then kind of go on our merry way. No, he has done this for us. It's life altering. We now ask this question, okay, God, how do I live? To answer that question, I want to ask you to turn to one last scripture with me. It's in Isaiah chapter one. Isaiah chapter one, and I'll be turning to verse 16.
I'll read verse 16 first. It says this, Watch, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil. We need to clean up, and there's only one way for us to do that, by the way. That is through Jesus, through his forgiveness offered to us, okay? But what does it then go on to say? Well, it says this, verse 17, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. As we experience the cleansing that Jesus offers us, we then too are then propelled into action. As recipients of grace, we are to become ambassadors of God's grace, fighting for the love of God and the justice of God. Perhaps the best modern story that I know about this is a, is a guy named Louis Zamperini. Some of you may be familiar with his story. I was fortunate enough to hear him speak before he passed away, but he was this extraordinary man who was a track and field star, running in the Olympics, all that sort of stuff, was pulled into World War II. His plane was shot down in the Pacific, and he was adrift on the Pacific for many days and nights. Only a few of his crew survived, and when they washed up on the shore of an island, they were captured by the Japanese. And he was placed in a prisoner of war camp where he suffered horrible, horrible injustices at the hands of the prison guards. When he was finally released, he managed to survive. When he was finally released at the end of the war and went back to the United States, he was a broken and bitter man. Somebody invited him along to hear the message of the gospel. He heard this truth about Jesus and the grace that he extends to us. And he believed it. It completely and radically changed him. I mean, if you want to talk about a, a, a truth that burst forth in his life, I mean, an excellent example of that. And so what he ended up doing is he, he took on not just this message of reconciliation and forgiveness, he started to see how that extended to even these prison guards who had tortured him in this prisoner of war camp. And he sought them out to tell them that he loved them and that he forgave them and that there was hope in Jesus. His life is a picture of the transformation that can happen with Jesus and the picture of what the Christian life looks like is as God does a work in us and sends us out. We all deserve punishment, but through Jesus, we can receive grace. And that is incredibly good news. I hope that you're not just sitting there saying, oh yeah, Harley, that is good news. If this doesn't bring great joy to your heart, we need to reflect here longer. And the truth is that we don't keep that to ourselves. We get to share it with others. So as we kind of close this thought in a way, or at least I'm about to wrap up our time up here, I want to encourage us to praise God together. We're allowed to sing now. As we sing, as we even sing this next song, which is so appropriate, may we do it with great gusto because we know that God is both just and loving and has extended such amazing grace to each one of us. Praise God that he is just. Praise God 
that he hasn't given us what we justly deserve. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you that even though the wages of sin is death, that the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God, I, I will be the first to admit that though that truth has become too familiar. And so, Lord, I pray that for my own heart and even for all these friends across this room today, that that would ring with a new and true sense. And God, if there's anybody who hasn't fully embraced that or believed that, who doesn't know if their name is written in the book of life, I pray that today would be a moment for them to believe. For those of us who do know it, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be so filled with worship and wonder. Even in these next few moments, as we sing, God, may we sing from the depths of our souls, praising the one hope that we have, and that is you. Thank you for our time together. Thank you that you are just. Thank you that you are loving. Thank you that you are gracious. We receive your grace. We meditate on it now, and we praise you. Amen.